electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Courtney, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and ahead this hour, good news is bad news until it's good news again. Better than expected retail sales and industrial production, pushing bond yields above 4.8% and almost back to those recent 488 highs. But our strategist sees limited upside for stocks, sticking with his 4,500-year-end price target, and he'll tell us which names he is buying now. The one big miss this morning, homebuilder sentiment, sliding to 10-month lows. Deutsche Bank is staying positive ahead of earnings next week. Their analyst is here to explain why. Plus, a new report shows workers could see the largest salary gains in more than 20 years. What that means for consumers and the Fed, we'll discuss. First, let's get a look at the markets, though, where we fluctuated between earlier declines and uh, stronger gains, which were fading somewhat as we speak. The Dow is up 51 points right now. The S&P positive by just about a tenth of a percent at 4380. The Nasdaq in danger of turning negative again. And the Russells are leading the way up one and a half percent. The Nasdaq perhaps uh, treating those bond yields as a bit of a headwind today. Uh, Even that, though, has uh, lost some steam in the last hour. Here's the Treasury space, which we mentioned uh, lots of action there as well today. The two-year yield is up about 10 basis points from yesterday's close, back above 520, while the 10-year is just a couple points below its recent highs of 488. About 482, the high today was just about 485. The climb in yields is why my next guest says the Fed will be sitting on its hands at the meeting in two weeks. For more, let's bring in Jeff Krumpelman, Mariner Wealth Advisors Chief Investment Strategist, and Peter Bookvar, Bleakley Financial Group's Chief Investment Officer and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Peter, is it you who thinks they're going to stand pat? I mean, some are arguing the latest spate of data should push them towards doing one more hike, even as soon as that next meeting. Well, the bond market's done it for them. If you look at where, and let's just take the most interest rate sensitive part of the economy, that being housing, since the July Fed rate hike, the average 30-year mortgage rate has risen an additional 100 basis points. If that's not tightening, I don't know what is. So the Fed, therefore, does not need to shift the Fed funds rate as the impact of the longer end rate rise flows through the economy in terms of its impact. Yeah. So and and I I sort of teased how Jeff feels about stocks. But, Peter, are you also in the camp that thinks we're going to be kind of range bound here? I I, I just I'm nervous with the rate rise, its impact on the economy negatively and also multiples that I'm just not comfortable with. Uh, Now, there's parts of the market that are cheap not defined as big cap. The small cap, the mid caps are, are much more attractive. Uh, we're tending to be focused on international markets that are much cheaper and commodity stocks. Right. But big cap tech, for example, is still wildly overvalued, in my opinion, particularly with the rise in rates that we've seen. Jeff Krumpelman, that tees you up nicely, because I know that in, in some ways, maybe in many ways, you agree, and, and you're looking towards a slightly different mix of, of stocks. What are they exactly? And what are, what's your sense about what we're learning here? Yeah, well, as you know, we were uh, outrageously bullish, I'd say, going into the year because we <laughs> thought folks were just uber uh, negative. We were going to have a recession. We we're going to have an earnings implosion. The Fed was going to hike to the moon. 
race, we're going to go to the moon. And, you know, that just hasn't played out. We have less worse outcomes, better than feared outcomes. And that's why we were, were bullish at that time. And, and now we've had this big run. And so, like Peter, um, after you've had that run, rather than risking the upside near term, I think not only, and that is the biggest concern, how high will rates go? I think they're going to calm. That's our base case because inflation is calming. But if they don't, that's a real problem. And in addition to that, you have, whether it's geopolitical conflict that you're worried about, uh, you have uh, fears about fiscal debt, government shutdown, all these things are psychological barriers that could cause P.E. contraction in the near term. Mm -hmm. On the good side, you got earnings that are coming out, and I think we're going to have a very good earnings season. Margins are starting to base and improve. And in that environment, as an active manager, that gets us excited when you're talking about, like Peter is, individual stocks. It's not an index. It's a market of stocks, Yeah. Uh, not a stock market. So, but just yeah, to be that's where we're at, and we... we yeah, no, and we'll, I definitely want to talk through some of those names. They're all very, very interesting ones, some battleground names and so forth. But just to your larger point, would you say then that the surging bond yields changed your bullishness on the market? I think it's just made us uh, more cautious and respectful of risk. And, you know, while our base case is rates are going to calm, yeah, we're telling people, hold your ground. Don't buy on the dips yet. Because if they do continue to rise further, then, um, you know, you need to be cautious. And I think right now, investors overall, our message is, gird yourself. You know, even though we think we're going to be at 4,800 or 5,000 by mid-year uh, next year, we could have, because of this rate rise, some, uh, you know, nice correction. And, and they tend to be violent. And so, gird yourself for that. Don't run away. Don't run scared because earnings are improving. But you know, you're going to have to kind of weather some volatility because of these factors. Yeah, That's our message. I think that makes a lot of sense. And again, a lot of people are wondering if some kind of, you know, downward move is, is lurking around the corner. Obviously, you sound like you are have you have a buying list now and you have a buying list ready. I mean, you're buying names like Tesla, like Booking, uh, Royal Caribbean. So plenty of, of, you know, kind of scary consumer and, and retail names in that mix. Um, I could call out others. You've got some industrials on here. Uh, technology names, you've got, you've, you've really kind of got them all. Is there anything that these companies have in common or and are they market leaders? Do you think they just have a strong balance sheets right now? What are you kind of most looking for? I think they have a combination of uh, great earnings profiles, uh, great growth prospects, and there are relatively, uh, and most of those stocks are attractively valued. And it's a blend of growth and value. Don't go extreme. Don't say it's all growth. Peter's right. You got some headwinds in tech, but there are some non-mega eight names that we find uh, increased productivity. It's all about, um, you know, whether you're talking about AI, whether you're talking about workflow management, they've got businesses that that, that, that need to, to buy from. And then within, there's a capital spending boom that's going underway right now that folks don't recognize. And so the reonshoring, remanufacturing, uh, building up the manufacturing base again in the United States, there's a lot of names, Jacobs Solutions, mm -hmm. United Rental, 
Vulcan, you want to be there because that's that's not going away. Yeah, no, and I always find that's a much more kind of hopeful place to look right now, kind of in, in spite right. of all the headwinds. Peter, I just want to come back to you, and you do see pressure building on the Fed from some corners, uh, at least of the analyst community, who see the stronger data and say, you know, they can't lose their, um, you know, their drive here, you know, that they have to stay tough on inflation and so forth. I mean, do you really think that the biggest risk is that they don't hike again or that they do? Well, I, I, I've been of the belief that just keeping rates where they are at these levels is itself continuously restrictive because every day somebody's loan is coming due and it's repricing at this much higher interest rate. So that is a, a form of tightening that's just going to continue on just by doing nothing. And as I mentioned earlier, the rise in rates is itself another form of tightening. And I want to make clear that this rise in interest rates is a global phenomenon. Just overnight, the Japanese 40-year JGB yield closed at a 10-year high. Wow. Yields were up sharply all over Europe. This is a global situation that's affecting not just U.S. companies. It's affecting businesses and households all around the world, which, as, it, as we progress from here, will further slow global growth. Very well said. I guess just to put a pin in it, what would stop it then? What would stop the rise in yields? Well, that, that's the, the, the crazy thing here is that we're seeing deceleration of inflation at the same time yields continue to go higher. And I think that has to do with the, the continued monetary unwind that we're seeing from all these central banks and just the enormous amount of, of debt supply that, that, that we're, we need to absorb and that sovereign bonds are no longer the safety trade. All right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there on that note. Uh, get, gets us to our Congress segment. Jeff Krumpelman and Peter Bookvar, we greatly appreciate your time today. The first vote for a new House speaker is underway right at the moment. Emily Wilkins is on Capitol Hill to track the action for us. How's it going, Emily? Well, Kelly, the vote is underway as we speak for a speaker. Of course, this comes 14 days after Kevin McCarthy was ousted. And right now, Jim Jordan is the Republican nominee. And the question is, can he get to 217? It's not looking great. You know, the way they do these roll call votes, it's from A to Z. Looking right now, we're about in the E's. And already you have three Republicans who have voted for someone other than Jordan. You had two vote for McCarthy, one voted for Lee Zeldin. Basically just a protest vote against Jordan. And a lot of these are coming from more moderate Republicans, Republicans who really helped win the majority for the Republican Party and allowed them to take control of the House after the 2022 election. And these are the Republicans who need to hold their seats in 2024. Otherwise, Democrats will take control of the chamber. A lot of them have concerns about Jordan. A lot of them worry that he's, you know, a little bit more of a hardliner, a little bit more extreme than McCarthy or Scalise. And they're worried about what it would mean if he was in the speaker's chair. So at this point, it looks like, and of course, we won't know until it's all done, but it looks like Jordan's not going to get to 217 on this round. Right. We could then see another round for speaker, and it's really not clear at this point how long it could take or if Republicans will eventually say to Jordan, hey, you got to step down and we got to figure out another path forward. Right. Lots of unanswered questions here in Capitol Hill. Coming. On the wires, Emily, they're saying that five Republican lawmakers have voted against Jordan. Now, we know, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe that could change. Uh, but I think he needs 217. They have 221 Republicans. They can't lose more than four. So if they have lost five and it stays that way, uh, he will fall short. But I guess there's still a, a window for, for some change. 
No, Kelly, you're, you know, I just checked the count. You know, this is obviously a fast-moving situation. They're voting as we speak. And I do see, yes, that now you are at five Republicans. And, yeah, I mean, it's not very, it's not common to see members go back and change their votes during something like this. You still have most of the members that have yet to vote. So at this point, it does look like Jordan will fail to get the 217 needed. And, of course, then we could go for another speaker vote. You could have Republicans break and just have a little bit more discussions. I think the big question is, how many votes is Jordan going to need to win over? If it's in the you know, single digits, maybe if it's somewhere between 10 or 20, maybe that's something that he can work on. Hmm. But if it's much more than that, it's going to raise real concerns about his ability to pull this off. Got it. Emily, thank you very much. Emily Wilkins, we appreciate it. Let's turn to PIMCO's head of public policy, Libby Cantrell, who joins us here for more. Um, exciting times, Libby, to say the least. So I like what Emily said at the end there, that in some ways, if this vote was... Let's just say expected to fail. The real question is, does he lose by a single digit margin or something bigger than that? What are you watching? Yeah, well, we're only on F, and he's already lost five votes. So this True. is obviously going for uh, going going to go to a second round. He's already indicated that he's willing to uh, continue voting until until he either gets the votes that magic two seventeen number, Kelly, as you mentioned, or he sort of you know capitulates um, like you know Steve Scalise had done even before the, it got to the got to the floor. I think what we're really looking for is it, when you when all the roll call votes are finished, does he get to sort of 210 to 11, that probably would show that he could, you know, do a little bit more arm twisting and get to that 217. However, if it's around 200 or even 205, that's going to be much more difficult. And then, Kelly, interestingly, we may be in the position that McCarthy was in, of course, when he was trying to get the speakership, where he made a lot of promises to different constituencies, which, of course, uh, ended up, you know, dooming him in the end because uh, you know, they 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 allege that he was he made promises that he wasn't able to honor. So um, this is not going to be clear cut. It will not be straightforward. I think the real question, though, again, is in that total vote count, is it just is he five members short or is he 20 members short? And that's a big that's a big difference. And one is reconcilable. One is probably not. What's it all mean for investors, Libby? Yeah, so, I mean, clearly, if, if Jim Jordan is able to win the speakership, you know, he is an unknown leader. Um, he has been much more comfortable in sort of the provocateur seat, if you will. He's actually not really been a, a real legislator, if you will. He hasn't passed a lot of legislation that he is, he's sponsored, actually nothing. Uh, but he really has been, again, more of that agitator, more of the person who's provided oversight to the Republican conference. So in terms of his leadership style, we don't really know. We can only adhere to what he's saying. And what he is saying, I think, actually should give the market some confidence. He's saying that he wants to fund the government. He wants to avoid a shutdown. Um, it, there's some speculation that he has committed to bring up at least Israeli aid, if not also Ukrainian aid. Um, so again, these are two big questions, I think, that may weigh on investors. However, again, we don't really know what he, how he will lead once he gets into that, um, that speakership. But of course, it's an open question at this point whether he will uh, even get those, the needed votes to get the speakership altogether. And Another angle I saw this morning, maybe you can confirm this, is that we could potentially be headed for automatic 1% spending cuts come Jan 1. Is that right? How would that work? 
Yeah, so this is, if you remember, and there's a lot of moving parts here, Kelly, so it's, um, I think, you know, uh, very natural that folks are not necessarily keeping track here. But if you remember that debt limit bill, um, that actually was an agreement uh, both to avoid, of course, uh, the breach of the debt ceiling, but also to fund the government for FY24 and FY25, however, at, 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 at specific spending levels, however, um, in order to sort of incentivize Congress to make, to, to, to reach appropriations levels and, and what have you, uh, there was a sort of 1% sequester that would happen if there was a continuing resolution, a resolution come January. Now, it looks like we probably will be operating under a continuing resolution in January, so that may not be able to be avoided. But what something that, that Jim Jordan has sort of um, you know, put out there is that he would move that trigger date to April. Um, so if Congress were still operating under a continuing resolution come April, then it would be a forced 1% sequester that would be both going forward, but then also retroactive. That may be a bridge too far. Again, that may be able to pass the House, but not pass the Senate. So again, a lot of moving parts here. I think the ultimate kind of takeaway, though, for, for markets is, one, does the government shut down? And then, two, what are the funding levels? I think on this, the latter, the funding levels are probably going to look very much like the agreement that was hashed out in the, de the debt agreement. So I don't, I don't think we should really yeah. view whoever wins the speakership as really um, a big inflection point for spending. Although, ironically, that might continue to put the bond market in a bad mood when it realizes, you know, there's not much change. Twelve, I think, Libby, is is now the count of no's. And uh, I'm not sure if we're halfway through the alphabet yet, but it does appear to be, um, you know, a margin that he'll have to really, a, a quite large margin that he'll have to really figure out how to overcome here. Yeah, Kelly, and I think the real question here, just in terms of the speaker fight, is whether he, again, sort of capitulates and takes his his name out of the race. And then what happens? I think an open question is, do folks actually sort of coalesce around this idea of giving the speaker pro tem more authorities? Right now, uh, the pro tem, uh, Patrick McHenry, really can't do anything. He can't bring up legislation, for instance, but Congress could actually uh, authorize him to do that. So I think that's the open question. If we can't get a speaker in place, do they actually just... Um, embolden him and give him more authorities. All right. Uh, changing by the moment here. <laughs> Libby, for now, thanks. Changing really appreciate yeah, thanks it. Lot, Libby Cantrell from PIMCO. Let's turn to mortgage rates. I mentioned bond yields today and look at this, 792. We are nearing 8% on the 30-year fixed after a couple of months at 7 plus, And it's hitting homebuilder sentiment. Diana Olick has those details. Diana? Well, Kelly, homebuilder sentiment in October dropped four points to 40 and September read was, dry, was revised down as well. This is the third straight month of declines and the lowest level since January. Anything below 50 is negative. Builders pointed squarely to those higher mortgage rates and today, as you said, the 30-year fixed hit a cyclical high of 7.92%. That according to Mortgage News Daily. So to get buyers in, 32% of builders reported cutting home prices, the highest rate since last December, and 62% provided sales incentives up from 59% in September and tied with the previous high last December. Kelly? So, Bill, listen, it sounds a little bit to, to folks as though the first round of mortgage pressure was bullish for the builders, but maybe this next round starts to result in a more traditional slowdown. I know they're trying to resort to a lot of buy-downs and things that other parts of the real estate market can't do. How is that helping and, and how is that trying to entice buyers? Well, it's just being helping buyers be able to afford homes at these higher interest rates. So about 70% of big builder incentives today are mortgage rate buy-downs, and that's according to analyst Ivy Zellman. This is when the builder lowers the mortgage rate for the buyer by paying points on the loan, and they can do this for the full length or for a few years. 
while they've done this on an individual basis in the past, it's nothing compared to what they're doing now. In fact, I spoke with D.R. Horton today, and they said they are doing the full point buy-down for the 30-year life of the loan, and it is not something we've done in previous cycles, at least not on the broad majority basis we're doing so today. Okay, so why haven't we seen this, though, hitting the cost of this, hitting the builder margins yet? Well, interesting, Zellman says it's because they've been able to kind of bury it in the savings they've seen recently from the drop in lumber prices. <laughs> lumber prices are down by a lot. They're unlikely to drop more next year. So Zellman said our general view is that margins are going to be under pressure and start compressing in 2024. But still, builders have to continue to do the buy-downs to stay competitive and to keep volume up, which, of course, keeps their trade costs down. And I'm wondering about regulatory action here. Uh, you know, we spoke last week with one guest who was saying that uh, Fannie and Freddie should start doing something uh, more in the mortgage market to try to reduce that spread. I, I bet we're going to start hearing a lot more proposals from different corners. I think the mortgage bankers and home builders themselves were lobbying uh, Washington already to see more relief on that front. What should we expect? Well, right. They were asking the Fed to at least make it clear how many more times they were going to raise rates and, of course, pushing them not to raise rates to bring down these mortgage rates. But the idea they were also, of course, uh, suggesting there had been some people in the market suggesting Fannie and Freddie should step in and start buying more MBS. That would take an act of Congress. So it would it's, it's a long road ahead to get that done. But again, of course, the industry is pushing to do anything that would lower mortgage rates because obviously it's hitting their bottom line. Yeah, I can't imagine Congress without a speaker right now is going to say, yes, yeah. releasing Fannie yeah, and Freddie shot. from conservatorship would be our first move. Uh, yeah. Diana, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Diana Olick. Our next guest is staying positive on the builders into their earnings next week. Let's bring in Joe Allersmeyer. He's a research analyst in the home building space at Deutsche Bank. Joe, welcome. Let me just pick up first and kind of an unconventional place, which is, do you expect any policy relief or, or help from Washington on mortgages or anything else uh, for the for this industry? Right. Great question. Thanks for having me back, Kelly. Nice to be here. First of all, I think it's very uh, obvious to point to the spread versus the 10-year uh, as a real problem and, and a big reason why the mortgage rate has gone higher. But, you know, in recent months, we've actually seen the 10-year itself go much higher. So even if we had uh, a more normal spread, which would come from less volatility in rates, and perhaps more activity on the repurchase side from the Fed, uh, you'd still be at something in the 6% range, which is a, a much higher rate than people are used to. So you will actually have to see the builders continuing to buy down rates. But uh, you know, I, I hear you calling out, or I hear you talking about uh, Zellman calling out the margin hit. Um, margin is just one part of the equation, right? So it is going to help with volumes. Uh, it is going to hurt margins. It's likely going to hurt uh, operating margins as well. But in terms of the actual earnings dollars that the builders are able to produce, that is what is going to drive book value higher. That's what's going. That's what the returns are going to be based on when people look to value these things. Uh, so seeing margins come down is not necessarily uh, on its own a terrible thing. Explain that again a little bit. And I know that who is reporting next week? Who are, who are going to be the main players that you're watching? Right. So last month you had a couple builders report off cycle. Next week we're going to get uh, Dr. Horton is going to be actually. DR Horton's later in the year because of their fiscal year. They're going to be next month. Uh, but you're going to have Meritage, Pulte. Uh, they're going to be the ones that you're going to be looking at next week that are, that are likely to talk about this. But the equation here, you, you said it sort of explained the dollars. Um, you, know, you could sit on a home for three years and wait for somebody to pay as much as you're wanting to take for it and get a high margin. Or you can sell it at a lower margin today, redeploy it into land several more times between now and three years from now. And the builders are more concerned about generating those profit dollars and those returns, meaning the actual profit 
divided by the invested capital. They're not concerned so much about the gross margin that they'll get on a home. They could take 30% when times are good and pricing is good, or they'll take 20% uh, when pricing is bad. And the good thing is when they underwrite land, they actually assume a very little price appreciation, if any, uh, and they assume a lower gross margin as a result. Uh, and they're really underwriting that to that return metric, not hmm. so much the gross margin metric. And that makes them a little bit more conservative. You know, Interestingly enough, I've also heard plenty of people concerned that um, we're not going to see any new multifamily supply coming on uh, once we get past this current glut because the banks have really just pulled back. You know, they're under pressure. Capital is restrained. And maybe, you know, if you spin this story out two or three years, you will get continued demand coming from uh, households who might see rents either start to go back up or not a lot of great options and kind of go back into the builder market where at least they can do things on incentives that, you know, traditional realtors, I guess, cannot. Right. And when you think about what's happening over the last 18 months with rising rates attempting to uh, bring inflation down, that is a demand side uh, issue. That's bringing in demand so that you have less of it and less pressure upward on prices. What is actually more compelling as a solution on the housing side is increasing supply. And that's increasing supply not only on the multifamily side, uh, but also on the single family side. And so while we also see deliveries of multifamily units extending beyond the weakness that you see here uh, on the start side for multifamily, it is concerning that we're already seeing, uh, I guess, a pullback on the number of starts on multifamily. Because again, building is good if you have uh, a supply side constraint that we've had for so many years. And that's a big part of what has been uh, pushing rents higher and pushing home prices higher is that supply constraint. If you could only pick one home builder right now, which one would it be? And it's interesting to note that the year-to-date gains have really uh, broadened, where there's some stocks up 60%, some are up 20%. You know, we're starting to see some more differentiation. For sure. And and look, we're going to, I'll tell you, it's DR Horton, and that is the most one of the most affordability-focused uh, buyers, meaning that their buyer uh, really does depend on being able to make a payment work, not necessarily like at a Toll Brothers, where they have a tremendous amount of equity that they're bringing from their existing home uh, and able to buy the home largely with balance sheet rather than income. Uh, so Horton, we still like them, though, because, again, we cover builder stocks. We don't cover necessarily the housing market uh, writ large. We're covering builder stocks. And we believe that Horton has the right uh, mindset here, the production builder mindset. Uh, they're willing to take lower margins to push volumes. We expect to hear them talk about that at their fourth quarter call uh, in November when they're giving uh, potentially guidance for volumes into next year, their September fiscal year. Uh, we expect to hear them talk about growth. Uh, we expect to hear them talk about starting more homes than they're selling in the third and fourth quarter, building inventory and preparing uh, for that volume growth next year. That's the type of thing that you won't see in the national housing data like the NAHB index, like the starts, potentially the housing starts from the census. Uh, those are things that will cover every builder in the country. DR Horton is going to be a little bit different than that. All right. Horton, here's a who is all I can think. Uh, very interesting, though. Glad you highlighted that. Joe, thanks so much for your time today. We'll check back in soon. Thanks, Kelly. Joe Allersmeyer from Deutsche Bank. Speaking of real estate, it's top of mind for bank investors who are concerned about that exposure to commercial and especially office space, especially after the latest results from Goldman and Bank of America today. We'll bring in Leslie Picker with those details. Leslie? 
Hey, Kelly, yeah, by and large, banks have been beneficiaries of higher rates, but the key exception to that are select real estate exposures. That was evident in varying ways in the two companies reporting today, Bank of America and Goldman Sachs. Uh, the latter showed a $728 million hit to earnings from select historical on-balance sheet investments, and much of that stemmed from exposure to commercial real estate. CFO Dennis Coleman said on the conference call today that the firm's office holdings were written down by 50% in half. Coleman said the firm started uh, the year with $15 billion of CRE alternative investments, and that's been reduced by $5 billion through paydowns or dispositions. Bank of America has been the biggest laggard among its larger peers over the last year in the stock market, thanks in part to some sizable unrealized losses in its cash and securities portfolio. In its earnings today, the presentation showed that the figure is now $131 billion. CEO Brian Moynihan said on Squawk on the Street that the firm will never realize those losses, but B of A said the valuation in its held to maturity book has declined 13% over the last year as mortgage rates ended the quarter at the highest level in almost 23 years. So those are just two examples. We'll start to get much more regional bank reports in the latter half of the week. And according to JP Morgan Private Bank in a report earlier this year, small banks have more than four times the CRE exposure than their larger banking peers. So those effects will be felt much more acutely in the regional firms that still have yet to report, Cal. All right, great point, Leslie. Thank you very much, Leslie Picker. Coming up, Apple CEO Tim Cook making a rare visit to China. Why now? And what's it mean for tensions between the two countries and Apple's supply chain? That plus why Apple's stock is on track for its first day losing streak in two months. And as we head to break, tech is the biggest laggard in the market today, dragged down by the chip makers after the U.S. announced new restrictions on exports of AI chips to China. NVIDIA, one of the biggest laggards there. In the meantime, energy and financials are leading the way as the Dow's gain evaporates to 31 points and the Nasdaq is negative again. We're back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Let's get some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. Wyndham Hotels popping today after Choice Hotels, which operates Radisson, Comfort Inn, Econo Lodge, among many other brands. Well, they revealed an offer to buy Wyndham for nearly $8 billion in cash and stock. Choice says they first approached Wyndham in April, but are taking their bid public now after Wyndham pulled out of talks. 
Choice CEO Pat Pacia says Wyndham shareholders would benefit since Choice has traded at a higher multiple over the past five years since Wyndham became a standalone company. But Wyndham's board apparently had concerns about regulatory approval and the value of Choice's stock, which was down as much as 8% on the news today. Wyndham has outperformed Choice since their respective pandemic lows in March 2020. It's up more than five-fold versus 159% for Choice. And here's what Choice CEO Pat Patius told Squawk Box this morning about the deal. So by bringing the two companies together, we believe that through direct bookings, lower operating costs, and a much more robust rewards program, we have an opportunity to help our owners of our franchises really improve the value of their assets and their return on investment. Now, Wyndham has since rejected Choice's offer, saying, quote, the proposal presents unacceptable risk to Wyndham shareholders. Wyndham's about eight and a half percent higher today, but at the price of 75 is trading way below the $90 deal price. Now let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler. All right, Kelly, thank you very much. A hospital was bombed in Gaza this afternoon. The Palestinian Health Ministry reports initial estimates of at least 500 casualties in what they say was an Israeli airstrike on the Baptist Hospital in central Gaza. The Israeli military has not yet commented. NBC News has not independently confirmed the report. Russia's parliament moved toward revoking the ratification of the nuclear test ban treaty. A top lawmaker warned that Moscow might abandon the pact completely. The country says its goal is to mirror the United States, which has signed but never ratified the treaty. And Russia stated it would not resume testing unless the U.S. does. India's top court today refused to legalize same-sex marriages in the world's most populous country. However, the chief justice of the court called on parliament to ensure the LGBTQ community does not face discrimination, saying it's the government's responsibility, not the court's, to create any laws allowing for same-sex marriage. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, I will see you soon. Thank you so much. Coming up, our Consumer Week continues with a closer look at that huge retail sales number this morning. That surprise to the upside, boosting names like Kohl's, Macy's, Nordstrom, Bath & Body, and Ross stores all solidly in the green today. Kohl's is up 15% in two days, having its best week in 11 months, even as the Dow has now turned negative. We're back after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back to The Exchange. Retail sales much stronger than expected this morning. It could translate to better third and fourth quarter GDP, according to economists. Sales jumped seven-tenths in September, six-tenths excluding autos. The numbers for July and August were also revised up. My next guest says he's not surprised because of the surge in salaries this year. Joining us now is Steve Odlin, president and CEO of the Conference Board and a CNBC contributor, along with CNBC's very own senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Welcome to both of you. Steve, let's get right to it. Steve Odlin, that is. What are the headlines on the salary front? Well, you know, CEOs are telling us, and we we polled now at the conference board over 400 firms. They're telling us that this year salaries went up close to four and a half percent. Next year, they're planning around four percent. 
That could be good news for consumers because if inflation does in fact come down below that, then real earnings could grow. And the question is, you know, is the consumer on edge or not? The retail sales data suggests that they're still strong, even though you've got over a trillion dollars in credit card debt, you've got their balance sheets worked down from the stimulus payments. So you would expect the, the consumers to start to be towards that edge. And yet, you know, now we're thinking that the real earnings will grow. Our consumer confidence index at the conference board <clears throat> fell in September, but that was mostly the expectations index. They're feeling really good about their current jobs, their current salary, their current situation, but they're worried about the next six months where they are expecting a recession. So that Finn finally says, what about the holidays? Because we're ramping right into the next two months and it looks like consumers still have some powder that's dry and, and the holidays could be okay. And Steve Leisman, I think the most fascinating dynamic going on right now is that I have, you know, everyone telling me retail sales is so strong and all this. And the, and the consumers themselves are telling us they do not feel good about things right now. So who do I believe? All the data that tells me things are fine or the consumers themselves who are telling me things are not? I think there's a famous phrase, Kelly, that answers you, which is, uh, watch what I do, not what I say. And I'm reminded, <laughs> Kelly, of, of the um, fact that in the wake of the 9-11, the tragic 9-11 events, Americans found themselves wandering car lots, buying cars like they were going out of style yeah. with a, uh, a massive incentive from the government. So, um, yes, uh, the, the, the consumer confidence data can help us with, with uh, turning points and things like that. Um, but but and, and by the way, the uh, uh, data that we've seen on consumers views on the economy are all terrible, but we're just not seeing it in the data. And just a couple of quick things, Kelly, I want to update you on, which is first, um, the uh, uh, Fed probabilities now with this report this morning have uh, gotten a lot stronger, not necessarily for November, but January is now in play. We are now, I think, for the first time above a 51 percent probability, above 50 percent probability for a rate hike now in January. So that's been pushed forward. And I want to read you this quote here from our friend Jan Niffen, who, you know, is one of the mm -hmm. best retail watchers out there. He sent me a note this morning. He said, come on, Steve. We bashed the consumer, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> with the fastest increase in interest rates in history. We bashed them with the fastest reduction in the money supply in 90 years. We bashed them with the highest inflation in 40 years. We bashed them with the war in Ukraine and now war in Israel. We bashed them with the worst presidential matchup in history. And they just kept spending. So I'll leave that there. All right, Steve Odland, maybe you should jump in here and explain, you know, that the salaries are one place this spending power seems to be coming from. And here again, I'm, I'm, just, I'm in this mood today. I'm going to say... But it's lagging, right? We often see strong salaries as like a delayed indication of what's going on in the economy. So can it really kind of keep things going here? Or is it, is it I don't want to call it the last hurrah, but something like that? Well, you know, you have an unusual situation because it's a, it's a Fed-induced recession that is being projected here. But it's still a tight labor market. And we've got a lot of skill shortages. You have CEOs banking talent. So people are feeling pretty good about their jobs and they're not feeling like that's at risk. And when that happens, they tend to spend and they spend based on their own cash, but they spend also based on real earnings growth and they're using debt. And I think that the debt numbers are gonna go higher. The consumer credit card numbers are going to go higher. 
uh, because they, they want to do this. And you're coming out of a pandemic where everything was shut down. So you're seeing services continue to grow and experiences, travel, restaurants uh, are continuing to grow. So all of that's happening. Now, one thing to watch out is that we just had this student loan payment come back on this month in October here for about, what, over 40 million uh, debtors uh, mm -hmm. that need to then fit that into their budgets as well. So that's one watch out. You also have CEOs saying there's going to be a recession. There's going to be, you have 70% of CEOs saying that there's going to be one more rate hike. And that syncs up with the conference board's own estimate, which is that there's going to be at least one more rate hike in the fall here. All right. So Steve Leisman, uh, leave this for us. Uh, I also watched the markets trying to make sense of it today. We were negative and then we were positive and now we're, you know, slightly negative again. Uh, you know, I think everyone's just trying to figure out exactly what good news is and, and looks like. Yeah, it's it's tough out there for sure, especially with the um, uh, the forecasts of the CEOs, which can create a reality. By the way, just a point that uh, uh, Barkin, the Richmond Fed president today, pointed out that one reason a recession, if we have one, might be less severe is because of this massively long lead up to the recession that we've had so far. So companies have had a chance to prepare for uh, less uh, uh, demand down the road if we do indeed get there. I want to leave you with a couple quick uh, data points here. The first is that the Atlanta Fed hiked its uh, GDP forecast this morning to 5.4%. Mm. They started off this quarter very strong. They went up from 5.1% uh, just today. They're ahead of the street and the average street forecast, but they've been right in forecasting this strong quarter. The other thing I want to tell you is that uh, reading the commentary this morning of those who have tracking forecasts, the way the GDP math works, uh, Kelly, is because we're ending the quarter in a strong way, the fourth quarter now appears to be stronger than we thought it was going to be, both this consumer momentum and the math works in favor of the right. fourth quarter. So that slowdown, we, what did we call it, uh, Kelly, the Godot recession, <laughs> the one we keep waiting for but never comes? I'm afraid we might be waiting again in the fourth quarter for that recession. I need to read the book and figure out how it ends uh, so I know what this all really tells. Uh, Steve Leisman, Steve Hodlin. I don't want to spoil it for you, but he never comes, Kelly. Ah, all right. <laughs> Fine. Thank you both. Appreciate your time today. I've got some reading to do. Coming up, Apple CEO Tim Cook making another trip to China. This time as iPhone 15 sales show signs of weakness. We have those details next. And before we head to break, let's check on the flurry of activist moves we are seeing lately. Just this morning, the Wall Street Journal reporting that Engaged Capital has built a stake in VF Corp, whose shares are up 13% today. Meanwhile, Nelson Peltz's Tryon is setting its sights on Allstate, and Starboard is taking on both News Corp and Fortria. That was spun off from LabCorp back in July. Shares of all three jumping the past two days. Starboard's Jeff Smith told our David Faber this morning the reason they took a stake in News Corp is simple. It's too cheap. He wants them to spin off digital realty business REA Group, which he values at $8 billion, leaving the media business valued just around $4 billion, which he says pales in comparison to competitors like The Times. Smith says News Corp is understandably, quote, a little insecure about running a standalone media business, but thinks they should reconsider it. And when asked by David if Starboard would be able to replace the board, Smith just said, you never know. Dow's down 17 points. We're back right after a break.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Tim Cook making a surprise and relatively rare visit to China amid some uncertainty about how the newest batch of iPhones are selling there. Deirdre Bosa joins us for more in today's Tech Check. Deirdre, what do we know? So the importance of China to Apple supply chain, that's received a lot of focus here. But Cook's recent visit, which he said was a surprise, that really underscores the importance of Chinese demand. Now, Cook went to an Apple store in Chengdu during a Tencent gaming tournament. So he brought attention to the new iPhone 15 that at a time when early indications are telling us that it may not be selling as well as the 14. And he also, in this way, brings attention to Apple's services economy. This is where the growth is supposed to come from. Remember Tencent, it is a huge Chinese gaming giant. It's one of the biggest app store earners on the app store itself. So it's key to that ecosystem that's trying to go beyond just iPhone sales. Now, the timing itself, Kelly, it was awkward. It comes as the U.S. ramps up chip sanctions, something we've been talking about today. And this is a point, I will say, that probably wasn't lost on Cook either. He was posting a ton on Weibo. That is China's big social media platform. And he was careful not to post on X, formerly known as Twitter. And it was funny. I was comparing the two platforms today. And he posts everything on Weibo, even stuff from the U.S., U.S. content. But he's very careful not to post Chinese content on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it these days. I love how we can glean almost more from those signals than anything else that's going on. Deirdre, great <laughs> point. Thank you very much. Uh, Deirdre Bosa reporting as Apple, as we mentioned, in the midst of a three-day losing streak. Stocks, by the way, are uh, seeing a bit of a losing patch right now. Up next, we'll get the action, the story, and the trade on United, Morgan Stanley, and Procter & Gamble in earnings exchange. And as we head to break, the markets are turning lower again and higher yields aren't helping. Today, it's really pressure on the short end. The two-year note at 5222, just shy of its 2006 high now, while the 10-year note also being dragged higher, 485. Odds of another Fed hike are rising after the strong data this morning. Uh, that seems to be putting a damper on things at the moment. We're back after this. Welcome back. It's time for Earnings Exchange. And today we're looking at Flights, Finance and Febreze, or better known as United Airlines, Morgan Stanley and Procter & Gamble. Here with our trades today, Nancy Tangler is Laffer Tangler Investments CEO and Chief Investment Officer. Nancy, welcome to you. Thank you, Kelly. It's always good to be with you. Glad you're on board uh, today, especially. Let's start with United Airlines, which has been part of this tough airline trade. It's back near its 52-week lows amid rising fuel prices. Tickets are, ticket prices are softening across the industry. Raymond James warning that United has an advantage in the more resilient, higher margin corporate and international travel sectors, or I should say emphasizing uh, that they do. Uh, you're a flyer of United, Nancy, but are you a buyer of the stock here? Yeah, well, I love the I love the airline. I, I'm dangerously close to two million lifetime miles. I, I fly it all the time, but I don't like the cyclicality of the business. There's no dividends, so investors are not getting paid to sort of um, suffer through higher energy costs, razor thin margins, negative free cash flow, and then you've got spending increasing. Not just the pilots' contract, where labor costs are going to go up 31 percent, but they've this is the second time they've made a pr significant order of airplanes. And, and that is going to have long-term profound impacts on cash flow and, and earnings, obviously, and margins. So I, I think there's better places to be. Uh, fly the airline, but don't take a flyer on the stock. 
All right. Fair enough. Uh, it's only up 6% year to date now. And again, it could be a tough quarter for them to get through. How about Morgan Stanley? The bank is on pace for its third straight negative month. In fact, investors are worried about the effect of rising yields. Even the trading action today is not going to help there. JMP says lower demand for wealth management could also pressure net interest income. Uh, you're an owner of the stock already, if I'm not mistaken. But would you get in here? Uh, I, well, I would wait to see what they report. I mean, we saw from Goldman today that trading revenues were better than expected. Uh, Morgan Stanley has that in their back pocket, but they also have the more stable uh, investment income uh, uh, revenues. Uh, I, I don't think you want to chase it here. The stock's had a tremendous run, even with the recent pullback since the pandemic. I think you wait for it to come back to you, but you are getting paid a 4.3% yield. And they've been growing the dividend, I mean, long-term to 25%, but that was out of the pandemic. Recent years, about 10% annually. So if you own it, I think you keep it. And then if you get a pullback, I think you definitely can. There's a place for it in, in just about every portfolio. Nancy, we have to run, but uh, we've got some Washington news. Just give me a thumbs up, thumbs down on Procter & Gamble, one of the biggest in the consumer staple space. Been a tough, tough trade this year. Two thumbs up. All right. She'll take it here. Nancy, appreciate your time today. Thanks for rolling with us. Thanks, Kelly. Really appreciate it. Nancy Tangler. The first vote for a new House Speaker has concluded, and it looks like Jim Jordan is well shy of the votes needed. Emily Wilkins with the results. Emily? Hey, Kelly. Well, 20 of House Republicans voted for someone other than Jim Jordan. That means that he has some work left to do if he wants to get that 217 needed to become Speaker. Now, currently, the House is in recess right now while they try and figure out what to do next. If you remember back in January, Kevin McCarthy on his initial ballot actually did better and he went for 15 rounds. That is absolutely not what Republicans want. You have heard calls from every corner that they want to unify, that they want to come together. But at this point, it's pretty clear that they're still a ways off. Most of those who did vote against Jordan uh, tend to be members. They're called Biden Republicans. They're basically Republicans who represent districts that also voted for Biden in 2020. And these are really the Republicans. The fact that they won these districts, they're the reason that Republicans have power in the House, that they control that chamber. And so they're very important for Republicans to keep that power past the 2024 election. And of course, a lot of them are concerned. Jim Jordan, a very hardline, very conservative member um, opposed uh, affirming the results of the 2020 election in favor of Biden. And there's just a lot of concern about what it would mean for him to be controlling the House. So House is in a recess right now. It's not quite clear what comes next. But at this point, we're still no close to having a speaker. So he lost 20 votes and it was interesting to watch the count come in. And there were a couple of votes for McCarthy, uh, along with a few others that made it through. Uh, so where do they go from here, Emily? What do you think is most likely that we continue to see more rounds, more deal making or that they have to end up going with McHenry and kind of looking for a better path forward there? I think at this point, you know, one of the numbers that I've heard tossed around a lot is numbers between 180 and 190. There were concerns that if Jordan couldn't get that, then they definitely have to go find someone new. But because he was able to get about 200 Republicans to vote for him, there is a chance that they'll try and maybe get Jordan to see if he can convert some of those no's to a yes during this recess. All right, Emily. Thank you so much. We appreciate it for now. I'm sure we'll see you again soon. Emily Wilkins reporting on Capitol Hill. Stocks are lower. Perhaps the lack of speaker vote, uh, lack of speaker outcome doesn't help. Dow's down 78 points right now. That does it for us. Next on Power Lunch, with the chip stocks under pressure, we'll get the details on the Biden administration's newest plan to further curb China's access to tech. Tyler's getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break.
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 